there is an odd fascination that people have with assassinations. It stretches as far back as Julius Caesar's, and it continues right on to any number of books on the Kennedys, and even movies on that of Osama bin Laden, and yet once again, Abraham Lincoln. Jesus tells a story about an assassination, his. He tells the parable of the wicked tenants about a bunch of thugs who have seemed to have taken a cue from Joseph's brothers who initially decided to off him. So let us kill this dreamer and see what happens to his dream. We may not agree with or approve of their plots, but most of us understand those who wish to kill a Hitler or a Stalin or even some, I'm sure, now of Putin. But how far does it go to an abortionist, for example? Assassination, in some ways, is the ultimate assertion of lawlessness, taking the law into your own hands or thinking that you are somehow above it in a good and righteous cause. Jesus tells the story of the assassination of a good person by evil people, who at first do not appear to be such. He addresses it, this story, to those who are commonly thought of as good, priests, elders, people we're not at all inclined to call evil. The scribes and the chief priests, Luke says, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, <clears throat> excuse me, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They perceived that he had told this parable against them, a perception that any five-year-old could have come up with. Well, Jesus was against them, and he is against the world, too. He stands in judgment against everyone who will not accept his acceptance of the world by faith alone, will not live in trust in the God who loved himself to the death of his son for the world. They apparently do not see themselves as evil, but Jesus does. And, bad news, Jesus addresses us church folks just as much as he does these assassins. Lent, if done right, is unsparing. We just wanted to be a little religious, thought we'd come to midweek services, and oh, of course, it helps if we get fed first. But God will not stop working with us, Lent or no Lent, until we have become like Christ. We can no more be just a little religious than we can be just a little pregnant, because we cannot be justified by Christ just a little bit. What part of us does not need to be justified? But back to the parable. 
The tenants violate the agreement they have with the owner of the vineyard when he quite legitimately sends someone to collect the rent. Now, there is no hint here of social issues, unfair rental practices while the boss luxuriates in comfort, no hint of a land reform agenda or anything of the sort. Just, it seems, old-fashioned greed. They beat up the first servant sent to collect the rent. The owner is undeterred, and so he sends another. They beat him up and treated him shamefully, whatever that implies. Now, at this point, no one in their right mind should be in doubt about what to do next. Call out the law on them. No one is in doubt except the landowner. He sends a third servant. This is the craziness of grace. He sends a third, and the viciousness es escalates as they beat him up and throw him out wounded. Again, at this point, no one in their right mind should be in doubt about what to do next. No one, that is, except the landowner. What shall I do, the landowner asks in a very odd rhetorical question. We all know what he should do. You've seen enough movies and TV to know how to take care of those who spurn your generosity. You've seen crooks do it, police do it, your neighbors do it, and you've done it yourself. No one goes to school to learn revenge, except, it seems, the Lord. Who sets up an intensive care unit for intensifying goodness except the Lord? What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Maybe they'll respect him. Yeah, right, fat chance, we say. We know how these stories go. But that's not what God says. I will send my son whom I love. Maybe they will respect him. The unexpected response reflects the completely incomprehensible concern for people, the lengths that God will go to to keep on his track and maintain contact in spite of the blindness and stubborn delusions of people. The reinforcements of God seem inexhaustible. I'll send my son whom I love. Such is the lavish generosity of God towards sinners that even suffering on the cross, the son is still for them. Father, forgive them, he says, first thing when they nail him up. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we want to say, yeah, right, just like in this parable. A preacher once said they could take away Jesus' clothing, they could take away his reputation, they could tear him away from his mother, they could take away his friends, even take away his life. They could strip him of everything, but they could not take away his power and his desire to forgive. Not the tenants in the story, not Herod, not Pilate, not Judas, not Peter and the other disciples, not the crowd, nor even we can take away Christ's power to forgive. It's a radical reversal, this forgiveness that comes from the cross. 
Isaiah in the Old Testament lesson reports God saying, see, I'm doing a new thing. I'll talk about that more with the kids. This new thing is like rivers flowing in the desert, an unexpected and, ref and refreshing thing, something that one doesn't really think is going to be there, and yet it is, giving life. Not that we wouldn't like to take this lavish and amazing grace away sometimes. It is to our minds not fitting for God, out of keeping with his business of running things and keeping good order in the world. Thirst for judgment creeps into our own churchly hearts and at our peril if we ignore Jesus' own comments on the fifth petition. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For if you will not forgive others their trespasses, he says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you yours. In his autobiography, Mark Twain concluded a tirade against a publisher who had once swindled him outrageously. He concluded his tirade on a seeming note of forgiveness. He has been dead a quarter of a century now, Twain wrote. I feel only compassion for him, and if I could send him a fan, I would. Twenty-five years later, was Twain really over it? I don't think so. Far from wanting any sinner in hell, God tries over and over again to bring that sinner back. We heard about God's attitude last Sunday in the parable of the prodigal son and the unforgiving older brother. While there is life, there is hope, the saying goes. And from God's point of view, so long as there is life, there is the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. Not certainly because we deserve it, but because God loved us enough to die for us. The cross is the sign of God's infinite, crazy grace. St. Paul saw the incongruity of it. So filled with violence and revenge was he that he was described in Acts as breathing threats and slaughter. Once he saw the grace of God, Paul would write in the epistle, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of the, his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by mean, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. All one long sentence, take a breath. In a time when so many of us have drifted into the shoals of nonchalance, to use someone's phrase, we find it hard to believe that someone could believe the way that Paul believed, much less identify with the intensity of his passion. It all seems to us a bit much. But Paul's intense feeling, his passion is 
all the more startling because he was not getting rid of a crack cocaine habit, drinking or gambling problem, or embezzling at the local savings and loan. He was in the righteousness business. He talks about that in the epistle, and yet he calls it all trash. In our moments of condescension, we forget that we are not only saying no to Paul's passionate belief and action, we're also doubting the one in whom Paul had that passionate belief. In our own way, we are like the tenants in Jesus's parable. Contrast the most passionate one of all, Jesus Christ, the Son whom the Father sends, the one who says unbelievably, Father, forgive them. There's further irony in this story. Jesus' story about God's response to their trying to kill off God's goodness precipitated the very behavior it was designed to challenge. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. There's a note of judgment, too, in this story about God's incessant attempts at forgiveness. What will the owner of the vineyard do to the wicked tenants? He will come and destroy them. There is a moment that cannot be undone. I remember reading a story once about a gang of Norwegian safecrackers. That's an odd way to begin. Safecrackers who would not give up trying to get into a particularly tough safe. They ended up using a little explosive only to watch the whole building go up in a great big bang. The safe, you see, had been used to store dynamite. <laughs> Whoops. There's a point of no return. The only thing that cannot be forgiven is the refusal to accept forgiveness, which unfaith is. There is a point at which we harm only ourselves in that we will not be called to account we will not be helped, we will not bear the fruit of a changed life. God has gone to the most extreme lengths possible for us in the craziness of his love and the gospel. That is his glory and our hope. To persist in ignoring him is to court disaster. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, Jesus said of himself. It is ours to be crushed by law and raised up again by the forgiveness of the gospel. In all things, we dare not forget that this kingdom stuff is serious business. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.